you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 5. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Great God in glory, we do praise you as the King of glory, the only one worthy of such weighty thoughts. The essence of your nature is the weight of your glory, and we praise you for that. And we pray, Father, now that you would reveal yourself to us. For except you do that, we cannot know you. Except you speak, we cannot hear. Except you reveal, we cannot see. Except you call, we cannot come. Except you extend grace, we are lost. So we acknowledge you as the source of all things. And God, I pray that you would hide me in your word. That you would keep me from being a stumbling block to your words. That you would control my mind my will, and even my emotions that you might be seen and heard clearly today and that your truth would be received, that we might believe it, that we might obey it, that we might live it and share it. God, we thank you for this time together. What a privilege it is to come before people who are desperate to hear a word from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's about as long uh, an awkward moment as I can stand. Uh, that was very awkward for you and for me. But the point I wanted to make by that silence was, what can you hear from me if I'm silent? And, of course, the obvious answer is nothing. I hope, I hope the message gets more profound than this point. But the point I'm trying to make is that except someone speak, we cannot hear. Right? Except... There are words we cannot understand. We've been created with faculties for accumulating data. It's obvious to look at us that God has designed us as beings to receive and gather data. We've been given five physical senses, you know, sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste. I may have left one out there, but anyway, the point is we're, we're designed to gather data. And even when we lose one of those senses, the others are heightened, aren't they? So the point of the scriptures is that God is revealing himself to us. And as I prayed, except he would do that, we could know nothing about him. And how does he do that? Well, he does, he does that. He does that through the word, through his word. Um, so to begin with, if we get the first slide up, 
How about that? This is the first time I've ever done that, so I'm kind of surprised it worked. But um, as, as an introduction, I want to talk about the words of men. Um, as we all know, former President Gerald Ford passed away the day after Christmas. And he outlived uh, former President Ronald Reagan by 45 days, making him the longest living president ever. 93 years, 165 days. He was a great man, had a great reputation and a record for many achievements. He was an All-American football player at the University of Michigan. He was a center and a linebacker, played both ways. A graduate of Yale Law School, a naval officer during World War II, and a lifetime government servant as congressman, vice president, and then president. An office which he never sought. He never really sought to be vice president. So he was a humble man, a servant of his nation. His accolades and eulogies at his funeral services were marked by sincere admiration and testimonies to his integrity, character, and the nature of his word. Listen to what former President George H.W. Bush, the first one, said of him in his eulogy. To political ally and adversary alike, Jerry Ford's word was always good. Now, how would you like that to be said about you? To your foes and to your friends, your word was always good. As President of the United States in the 70s, he was not only reputed for integrity and a good word, but he was the most powerful man on earth. Well, I want to ask you a question. Why was it so important that he be a man of his word in that time? Do you all remember that time? Who did he follow? Nixon. And what, what, what kind of word did he have? It was not good. He had been proven to be a liar and he had been proven to, do, to have done some things that were dishonest. So it was very important for the office to have integrity. So what was the impact of the speech or the words of President Ford? Um, he could pardon men. Just by his word, he could pardon men as he did Nixon and brought healing to the nation by doing so. He could launch acts of war. As commander-in-chief of the most powerful nation on earth, he could launch great armies, great navies, and uh, great military armed forces. He could enact legislation. He could make law. He could propose and sign law into effect. But what of his words today? What of his words today? Do they still have the same effect? Do they still have the same power? Do they still have the same authority? Or even what of his words in terms of integrity? Um, his words only applied when he held the authority behind them. Only for those under that authority and only for that time. So it was only for Americans, only for that time when he was president. And even when backed by some limited authority, can you really trust the words of any man with anything eternal? Why? Where is Jerry Ford today? He's dead. So could you really entrust anything eternal to President Gerald Ford and his word? So even the best of men, the most powerful of men, cannot speak words with authority, power, and promise, with hope, joy, comfort, encouragement, edification, good news, light, life, and love. Of course, that only can come from the Word of God. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is steadfast and sure. And so likewise, His Word is too. So, first part is just an overview about the Word of God. The Word of God in general, when God speaks, 
He speaks from His divine nature. You know, we can separate our words from ourselves sometimes. Like, we may be a fairly good person of integrity and yet speak vehement, hurtful, nasty words. We may be nasty, ugly people at times and speak good words. We can separate our words from our nature. God cannot. God is always true to His nature and thank God for that because His nature is always true, is always pure. In our church's doctrinal statement, which is up there, if you can read it, I know it's small, we say that we believe the Bible is God's written revelation of God. These holy scriptures are perfect as originally given by and from God, God breathed, and are the eternal, inspired, inerrant, infallible, verbal, and plenary very word of God for man. And here's the key thing. They are the sole authority and truth for who? All men, for all times, for all matters of faith and practice. When Carlton asked me to preach for him because he's been, by the way, just so you all know, he's not being lazy. He's been away all week in seminary studying for his doctorate. And uh, so he just got in late last night and he's been preaching and teaching and studying and uh, working hard. And so... I guess that's a good enough excuse for me to have to do this as long as it's just once a year. It's exactly one year ago that I stood up here before, so that's close enough. But when he asked me, I told him I was struggling with what to say. And, of course, it's always good to say what's on your heart, what God's been dealing with in your own life. And he reminded me of Spurgeon's comment that, you know, if you don't do a verse, then do a chapter. If you don't do a chapter, then do a book. If you don't do a book, then do the whole Bible. I don't want to scare you any further than you are by me standing up here, but I'm going to do the whole Bible. So, as you know, we've been studying the book of Genesis um, in Sunday morning Bible study, and we've been in that book exactly one year as of today. I know it seems longer for those of you who are in it, but in fact, we've only studied it 40 lessons, and we're already through chapter 9, which is unbelievable, breakneck speed in my opinion, but... The, the, reason I'm, the reason I want to share this with you today is that what God has shown me in Genesis, one of the many things God has blessed me with in Genesis, is the reality of His Word, all of His words. Because we've been studying some of the most questioned words in all the Bible, the first chapters of Genesis. They're the most disputed, the most challenged, the most controversial And I've come to understand in a very real way that all the words of the Bible, all the words of the Bible, even the first ones that are disputed and controversial, are the very words of the very true and living God. And those are often disputed as legends or fables. It's like Wendell White expressed it best one day when we were talking about it. They may be good Bible stories for children, but they're not really like what we need. You know, it's not like they're for adults. I mean, he meant that I was asking him about how to explain what I was going through. But they are real. They're real words, real stories of real events and real people who had real faith in what God said. As it was for Adam, so it is for us. As it was for Noah, so it is for us. And I want to see that in three areas of power of God's Word. How God's Word is effectual. It's efficacious and effectual. It produces an effect. When it is declared, it will not return void. It produces that which it was sent forth for. So, 
First of all, first point at the bottom of the screen, the creative power of God's Word. Right in the beginning in Genesis, Genesis 1-3, how does God create? First of all, there's nothing. And God does what? He speaks. It says, And then God said, Let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Light could not help but appear because God declared it to be so. So therefore it was. He said, let there be an expanse or sky, and there was an expanse or sky. He said, let there be a gathering of the waters and the dry land, and there was a seas and the dry land. All the way through creation until His crowning climax, and that's us in His own image. God said, and it was, creation out of something, I mean creation out of nothing, something out of nothing. Ex nihilio, uh, the Latin I think is, just by His Word. So I ask you something. When's the last time you made something by your word? When's the last time you said, go get me a banana sandwich and it appeared? Uh, you know, <laughs> newlyweds, that may still happen. But, um, <laughs> but, but even when you manufacture something, that's what you're doing, right? You're making, you're, not, you're building, you're not creating something out of nothing. So, and you can't even do that by speaking. So how much more amazing that God can speak and it appears. But even more amazing, and I want you to follow me with this, this is a progression, even more amazing is the recreative power. The recreative or redemptive power of God's Word. And we see this in Genesis 2. Because immediately after creation, what happens? There's the fall. And of course that doesn't take God by surprise. That was part of his plan. He's not the author of sin, but it was part of his plan all along. He had even greater revelation for us, for even greater glory for him. And so immediately after the fall, God said in Genesis 3.15 that his redemption and recreation would come in the seed of the woman. And although this promised one would have his heel bruised by the seed of the serpent, he would crush the serpent's head. So God took the initiative and by grace, extended it through His Word. God extends grace through His Word. So He gave the promise. He spoke it. Adam and Eve believed this promise, and under God's covenant of grace that Heath talked about this morning, it's a great Sunday school lesson uh, Heath had this morning, on the covenants of works and grace. They failed at works, so God brought forth the grace covenant and they responded and were reckoned as righteous and saved from their deserved spiritual death, separation, and destruction. Later in Genesis 6, we see God the great grace initiator. Catch that term. God is the great grace initiator. At work again in Genesis 6-8, we see that His grace or favor was granted to Noah. Then, the next verse says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So God's sovereign pleasure was graced upon Noah through His Word. And then God empowered Noah, as we talked about this morning, by grace, through faith, to respond to that. And he was reckoned righteous, found blameless, and experienced to walk with God. So again, God's, uh, Noah's response was to trust God's Word. So notice that God's revelation is progressive and it's building. It's building, increasing in Word and power. Now, we may think there's no way any word is more powerful than one that can speak and galaxies appear. 
That's pretty amazing to me, I have to admit that. To speak and billions of galaxies appear. All that we see, all that we know appears out of nothing. That's pretty amazing. But I want you to think about this. He's making new creations in Christ. Building a bride suitable for His glory. This is His own possession. His own bride. Intimate for eternity. And He's doing it not from, some, not from nothing. And the good thing about nothing is what? That it's neutral in righteousness. But He's building His bride out of what? Wicked, desperate, hopeless, helpless, depraved, dead. If we think any other way to make us feel any more accurately depressed... I mean, that's, that's who we are. And that's who He's building His bride from, is from wickedness, from depravity, from death, He's bringing forth life. And life even more abundantly than in the initial creation. He spoke and called righteous Abel to provide the proper sacrifice. He spoke and called righteous Noah to save his family and the animal kingdom alive through the judgment of the flood. He spoke and called Abram from his home to a foreign land to become a chosen people for God. He spoke and called forth a whole nation of people through whom His promise would come. They were all dead. They were all wicked. They were all depraved. They were all hopeless and helpless except the grace of God be shed abroad through to them through His Word. None of them were the most likely choices from man's perspective, but even these He's making special. He's making a separate, special, holy vessels of His marvelous grace. So, 1 Peter 2.9, we're coming... Well, that's good. We're, 1 Peter 2.9 says, We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, see this recreative power? God is recreating to bring even greater glory to His name in redemption. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, says we're being transformed from what? Glory to glory. From one glory to another. So you see an increasing glory. Glory upon glory. An increasing revelation. Revelation upon revelation. So therefore an increasing grace. Grace upon grace. And so I could go on and on from the Old Testament. The Word of God to Job, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets... But in all cases, we see God speaking, man listening. God revealing His truth, man responding in faith. God revealing His glory, man receiving grace and mercy. So think about it this way. God calls or speaks. Then He covenants for relationship. So He calls, speaks, declares forth His Word. He covenants. He makes the agreement, the binding agreement in blood, as He spoke about this morning, and then he does all that to bring about his consummation. The consum- so you've got the calling, the covenant, and then the consummation, which is glory for him, and we share in that. And all this through the power of his word in creation and recreation. So now, actually this is at the very bottom of the previous slide, but Hebrews 11.39 says, And all these, all these Old Testament saints that we've looked at, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I mean, how precious is that? That we 
stand on the shoulders of the, all these Old Testament saints. And so we have benefited from that grace piled upon grace, that glory piled upon glory, that word piled upon word. So where was all this headed? What was the focus and hope of God's revelation and the faith of all those Old Testament faithful? How should we view this today? Well, I want you to look at this verse. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Of course, we looked at this in Bible study two weeks ago briefly, but I want to focus in on it again. It is so powerful to, to consider Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. So, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, I mean, do you realize where we stand today that finally after 4,000 years, the cry of Eve, when she said, I've gotten Him, I've gotten the acquired one, when she named Cain, she said, I've gotten Him, the promised one of Genesis 3.15. Of course, she didn't know she had a murderer. But the point is, They had faith in God's promise. They responded in faith. And 4,000 years later, Christ has come fulfilling that and being that promised seed of the woman. You realize after 2,000 years of promise to Job, when Job said that he knew that his Redeemer lived and that in his flesh he would see Him, that Christ appeared, all the hope that was in two millenniums of his faith, after a thousand years, the prophecies of David had come true. All the many things he said about the begotten Son of God in the Psalms and many, in many Psalms had come true. After over 700 years, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. The son of the virgin called Emmanuel. The child is born. The son is given. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. He's come. And now as He said this morning, now we look back to a reality, not forward to that hope of His first coming, but on and on, year after year, century after century, in prophecies, in law, in the first and countless sacrifices to follow, in the ark, in the tabernacle, in the temple, its furnishings, in the types of Adam, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abram, Joseph, David, many others, God was speaking to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And then He came. And so you think, wow, that's it. It can't get any better. But it can. With God, it's always progressive. It's always building. His best had come. The focal, God split history when Christ appeared. The cross is the central point, the central event in all of history. And God had been speaking for thousands of years, and then He thundered onto the scene in in flesh in His Son, Jesus Christ. So in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So how blessed... Just pause for a moment and think how blessed and privileged we are. We think so much about how privileged we are to enjoy the wealth we do, to enjoy the standing we do, to enjoy the health we do, to enjoy being an American. 
But far above that, how privileged are we as a people to be in this time, in these days, in these New Testament days that we look back in faith to the living Word made flesh, Jesus Christ Himself. Now, next slide. Third, we see the power of God's Word in creation. We see the power of God in recreation or in His redemptive work. But as I say, it's still building and there is yet another power to be revealed and that is His new creation power. Unbelievably, the power of God's Word is not finished yet. Now hear me close. Don't accuse me of saying something that's wrong here. I am not saying Revelation is not closed. The written Word of God is closed. book of Revelation is last. There's nothing to be added to it by men. But the effect, as I said, God speaks and there's an effect. The effect is still ongoing. It's still going. God is still building His revelation. He's still building the power of it by His Word. And we now look forward to the second coming of His new creation. And why do we look forward to the second coming? It's because He said so. That's my point today. We could phrase it from many different angles from the Scriptures, but the point I'm making today is He's coming because He said so. His Word is trustworthy. His Word is powerful. His Word is eternal. And I want you to think about this. This is an interesting side thought. How many days did it take God to create all that we know? Six. All right. How long did God walk in the flesh on this earth to to, uh, perfectly obey all the law? 33 years. How many years did He spend... uh, in his focused ministry, three years. How long did he spend in his most passionate week of his life? Seven days. And how, how long did it take him to accomplish his greatest work? And that was his death, burial, and resurrection. Three days. Well, now, having said all that, Christ said, told his disciples in John chapter 14, he said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So when did he go? 2,000 years ago. What's he been doing for 2,000 years? Preparing a place for us. Well, now, I know God's outside of time and I'm not trying to get into that debate. That's beyond me and beyond this time. But the point is, that if he did all this in six days, if he conquered death, sin, and hell in three days, what is he doing in two millennia? What is he up to? And what do we have to look forward to? It, I think it's, Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which is not even entered into the heart of men. We can't even imagine it. People want to sing all these songs about heaven and the streets of gold, and and I'm not making fun of that. But we have no clue. We have no clue. We cannot imagine it. And in fact, I think even Paul kept us from more revelation to prevent mass suicide. Because if we only knew. And consider this thought too, just as a side thought. All believers have been looking forward to a coming Christ. Right? All believers. 
And you say, well, no, we look back. I just said that. Well, but, and his disciples, they saw him in the flesh. But didn't they have an aspect of his coming again that they looked forward to? He died, left them, and they looked forward to his return. They looked forward to seeing the new, to, to seeing the resurrected Christ. We, too, look forward to the resurrected Christ. Uh, so in that way, we're like the Old Testament saints. One other passage I want you to turn to is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is, it gets the hair on the back of my neck standing to think about these things. This is so exciting. 1 Peter, I said chapter 3, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Where is it? Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for what? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And see, jump down to verse 8. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's coming. He's coming. And He's coming because He said so. His Word is true. His Word never fails. His Word will be accomplished. And it will accomplish whatever it intends. And all the way through Revelation, the last... We don't have time, but you can look in Revelation chapter 22. It says over and over again, Come. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let one who hears say, Come. And even so, Lord, come quickly. Exposition. The next part. I want to get into the verse I read. So we see the Bible is the revelation. I hope that was enough of a sweep to prove the Bible is the revelation of God's Word. It's the very Word of God. He speaks of His very own nature. He is the God who speaks. And He's done so creatively, recreatively, and with new creation power. So what's the effect of that word? Where does that bring us to? Well, let's go back to the text that I started off by reading. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. I've shared this with you before, but the literal interpretation of Luke chapter 1, verse 37, where the angel speaking to Mary is... With God, and that should be up here. Yeah, with God, not any word is without power. With God, not any word is without power. That is what I'm trying to point out today. And I think this beautiful passage out of Isaiah that, in, that was used in the uh, musical Messiah is a powerful demonstration of that. So let's look at this passage in detail. First of all, know this. Isaiah is a, pas- is a book about prophecy, obviously. And the first part of it is a section about coming judgment condemnation, the first 35 chapters. Then there's a historical interlude for three chapters. And then there's this section beginning in chapters 40 through 66 about coming salvation and comfort. So this is about God's ultimate salvation and consolation for His people. So how does He console His people who are in captivity, who are desperate, who are hopeless? How good is His Word to them on these things? All the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We know that from Psalm 19. 
Even more so, the, the Scriptures declare His glory. And even more so, the Word made flesh declares His glory. Glory is of only the, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet there is another glory to be revealed that's coming. Notice in verse 5. Verse 5 tells us in this prophecy that this glory of the Lord shall be revealed such that all flesh shall see it together. Think about that. So what is this special glory that's going to be revealed at a time in the future? Such that all flesh shall see it together. Critics use this to criticize the Bible. Well, it's describing a time that Jesus tells us about in his Olivet Discourse. So at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth, so all flesh, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then in chapter 25, verse 31, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations be gathered before him. So in other words, this prophecy in Isaiah probably collectively refers to his second coming. All of it. The tribulation, you know, the rapture, the tribulation, the judgments, the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the sheep and goats that I just mentioned. Uh, you know, the passage in Philippians 2 where it says what? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So that's a common great glory that's coming. All right? So it's coming. And why is it coming? Well, look in uh, verse 8. I want to point out that this is the key to this passage as far as it relates to today's message is verse 8. Because it says what? For the mouth of the Lord... I'm sorry, not verse 8. Verse 5, I'm wrong one. It's the last phrase in verse 5. It says, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Literally, the Hebrew could be better translated there because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One translation even renders it this way. The Lord has spoken, it shall be. So consider what this is saying. God has said it, therefore it shall be. So the implication is, is that because God has spoken it, all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to get God's Word ahead of God's decrees. They're all out of the nature of God, so they're all perfect. And, but I'm just trying to say that once God speaks, it cannot be changed. His Word cannot be changed. His Word cannot fail. His Word has all authority, all power, and it therefore is totally trustworthy. We know that God does whatever He pleases. We know that. But I want you to think about this with me this morning. Do we really stop and consider that His Word can even be seen as the ultimate cause for any effect? Let me say that again. Do you think about that His Word can be seen as the ultimate cause for any effect? Why do things happen? Because God said so. That's why things happen. Because God said so. Why are we saved? Because God said so. Why anything is important? Because God said so. So you see in verse 6, you see a voice, a second voice, maybe an angel, saying call out. And then a third voice, probably representative man, says, what shall I call out? Well, why is this? Because humanity is worthless. All humanity, all the flesh of humanity is like grass that withers. And all the glory of humanity is like the flower that fades. 
So what's worth calling out? Even Gerald Ford's words aren't worth calling out. So what's the point? What's the, what is worth repeating? But then the answer, of course, is in the wonderful verse 8 that says, All grass, all mankind, all humanity withers, and the flower, all human works, all human glory fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus himself said it even stronger in Matthew 24, verse 35, where he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but what? My words shall not pass away. Can't happen. Can't happen. So here in these verses, two points of exposition. Number one, the authority or power of his words, that's its affecting nature. It's affecting nature. And number two, the eternal nature and glory of his words. That's its eternal nature. So we see it's affecting nature. It brings about its desired result. Just like um, Isaiah 55 in the hydro, uh, hydrological cycle says. And then number two is the eternal nature. It stands forever. So how is his word different from that of men? Even the best and most powerful of men. Next slide. Application. All right. I had three points of overview the creative, the redemptive power, and then the new creation power. And I had two points of exposition, and that was that it is affecting power of God's Word and the eternal nature of God's Word, or the affecting nature and the eternal nature. I've got one application. What does this mean for us today? Think about this. Of course, it's up there. But think about this. What else can we do? When... When someone wants to yield its, his greatest compliment to you, what, what can he do? Take you at your word. And what's the greatest insult you can have? Is someone that doubts your word, that doesn't believe you, that doubts your integrity. God's divine nature is, is the point. How do we see God? That's how we respond to his word. What else can we do except believe it? If His Word is eternal and stands forever, if we have this Word to us that is the eternal cause behind every effect, if God Himself has spoken to us, to you, to me, then what can we do except to receive it, to hear it, to believe it, to take Him at His Word? That is the essence of faith, is taking God at His Word. So, why has He done this? In a word, it's salvation for us. In a word, it's glory for Him. Now, we know that whatever is not of faith is sin. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we know that the proof of our faith is what results in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, faith also is progressive. It should be progressive. It should build upon itself being the opposite of sin, the means of righteousness for pleasing God, and what results or produces praise and honor and glory for Christ when we meet Him in glory. So our response should be like the voice, pure and true, trusting in His Word. But as we mentioned this morning, the question came up this morning, what is faith? What is true faith? What is saving faith? Well, Go to James chapter 2. If you want to turn there, James chapter 2, verse 18 through 24, that passage. Heath brought it up this morning. We were discussing it. But I want you to consider the question that I put up here. How is our faith 
different from or better than that of the demons. Because he says here, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well, sarcastically. The demons also believe and shudder. Okay, so I want to ask, who in here knows more about the authority and power of God than a demon? Who in here knows more about God's Word than a demon? Who in here knows more passages? I mean, demons use God's Word, corrupting it to deceive us. Nobody. Nobody knows more about God's eternal nature, His power, His divine glory, and the, uh, the content of His Word than a demon. So how is it different? Well, it gets to the, the point, gets to what's surrounding that one verse in James about works. There are many illustrations about faith, many that I could say, and I don't have time to get into a treatise on faith, but just so we don't leave here without nailing down an application. You know, one illustration has been used many, many times is it's been compared to like going across a frozen lake. And you know, that gets to what is the object of our faith. And what's the object of our faith? The object of our faith is the spoken word of God, which is backed up by the character and nature of God, right? So our faith is secure. That's why God said that it could be a mustard seed. It could be just a mustard seed and move a mountain. So it's not the strength or amount of faith, but it's the quality of faith based upon its object. So very little faith and hesitation in crossing a frozen lake with a very thick sheet of ice is a lot better for success than a whole lot of gall and a whole lot of determination and a whole lot of great faith in a real thin sheet of ice, right? One is going to get you wet, and the other one will get you to the other side. And by the way, let me say this about this, that illustration and the, and the one I'm closing with. But for you purists out there like me who are thinking, well, the illustration analogy breaks down at some point, especially when you deal with the sovereign nature of God and grace. I agree. There is no illustration to illustrate God's sovereign grace and salvation. I can't come up with one. I don't, I've never heard one. But the Bible clearly teaches that we're responsible. God is sovereign, but we're responsible. The Bible clearly teaches that except we respond in faith, we deserve and end up in hell. So it's a very serious thing for us to declare clearly that we are commanded Christ came forth in the book of Mark and his first words were repent and believe the gospel. They were in an imperative mood. He didn't invite somebody to come to him. It was not an invitation. It's a command that we must obey or die. And so, to illustrate, how do we do that? How do we have saving faith? How do we have real faith even after we're saved? What is it like? The best illustration I've ever heard is one about Niagara Falls. Uh, imagine you're floating in a river and you got in the wrong river because you're from the south and you went up north and you didn't have a guide and you're drifting along having a good time and then you see a sign that says falls ahead and you can't get to the other sides and um, you begin to get panicked and then you hear the roar of the Niagara and you begin to see people on the bank shouting to you, getting concerned about you. 
And you know you're approaching Niagara Falls. And that's the falls where there's over a million bathtubs of water flows over it a minute and falls 180 feet. So on a rocky ledge, so you know what's going to happen. You're going to die. And uh, things don't look good. But you're drifting along. And you become more and more panicked as the people become more and more urgent with their pleas. And then you understand what they're saying. That providentially, there is a rescue rope ahead that will providentially drift you just to it. And it's secured. It's a strong and sure rope that's secured to the anchor rocks in the bank. And all you have to do is to grab that rope. I know for your purist, it's backwards. But all you got to do is grab that rope. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to make light of this because it is true. We're commanded to repent and believe. And then when we get to the bank, we realize somebody grabbed us. But that's okay. We, when we're in the water, we better repent and believe. So the point is that all you got to do is grab the rope. Well, but you get more and more panicked because the currents are swifter and swifter. And then a tree drifts by and you cling to the tree for some rest and hope. And it gives you some comfort thinking that you may make it. But what's the point? the tree will take you to your certain death because the current will drift it even stronger than your body. It's just like a sail in the wind. And so then you realize that the choice is either you heed their word and you grab the rope and you do what? Turn loose the tree. Because if you grab the rope and hang on to the tree, what's going to happen? The tree's going to yank you over the falls. So what's my point of that illustration? The rope is the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the rescue. And the tree is what? That's us. That's our lives. And so true faith means, it's like Carlton said this morning, it's like a poker analogy. You push it all in the middle. You laid it all on line. You've turned loose of everything. The tree is all you are. It's all you know. It's, it's who you know. It's what all men have said to you. It's all the philosophies of men. It's all your hopes, your possessions, your family, everything. You lay it all on the line and say, God, I give it all up. All my works, all my efforts are filthy, worthless rags. I want you. And I grab the rope and I'm saved. So what's the application? You know, if you're here today and you really don't have that kind of faith, if you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, then... God is calling you. If, if you know that, then the God of grace, the great grace initiator, is calling upon you in your heart. If you understand that you're a depraved sinner and you're hopeless and helpless before Him, and you understand that He is the only means of your salvation, your flesh didn't expose that to you. God exposed that to you. That is a grace revelation by His Word, by the power of His Spirit. So I beg you, as urgently as I know how, as seriously as I know how, to receive that grace and be saved. Turn loose of the tree. And by the way, isn't that why it's harder for people to get saved in America? While they're coming to Christ by millions in other parts of the world, our trees are so big. We have such big trees. They're, they're drifting, hanging on to little sticks. And we have great trees 
We think, what do we need a rope for? But it takes us to our certain death. So, you say, well, I know I have a relationship with Christ. I know it's real. I know I have faith. Well, I still, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see whether you're in faith. Examine yourselves to be sure that Christ is in you. So, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then the, the call is still the same, and that is believe God. Take God at His Word. If you're like me, you're clinging to Him, weak in faith, but nonetheless clinging to Him and to Him alone. But don't we cry out for God to increase our faith, to increase our ability to trust Him in all areas. We could go back to Noah. We could look at the example of his trust for God's Word in every aspect of building the ark. There are many examples we could look at. But the point I want you to think about today, you know your life. God's exposing things to you right now that you know where you need to just trust God. You know what's going on in your life that is sin. John Piper says that the, the root of all sin is unbelief. All sin is based on unbelief. We're not believing God at some point in our life. And so, I know I have many of those areas in my life, and I challenge you today to look into your life. Let the Spirit of God search your heart and your life today to expose to you, where is it that you're not trusting God? Where is it? Is it in your works? Is it in your work? Is it in your family? Is it in your your uh, testimony to others? Is it in your discipleship? Is it in your growth? Is it in your time with Him? Is it in your finances? We go on and on. But I'm, I close with this question. Why do you sin? There's two, two options. We either sin because we know what to do and we refuse to do it, or we don't know what to do, and therefore we sin by ignorance. Well, so... Are you sinning more from not knowing enough of God's Word? Or do you sin more because you simply are not obeying what words you do know? So, to put it simply, do you find yourself believing and obeying more than you know? Or do you find yourself knowing more than you believe and obey? We're, we're, this is a great church. I love this church. And it is intimidating to stand up here to try to be used of God to bring a true word of His to a people who demand His word. That's who you are. And I praise you for that. And I praise God for giving you hearts and minds that pursue His word. It's a, it's a, it, it is an intimidating and a great thing. But the thing I want us to question today because I think it's, it's something that we all need to consider. Do we find ourselves believing and obeying more than we know? Or do we find ourselves knowing more than we believe and obey? We've been blessed with great knowledge. Are we pursuing it with great faith and great obedience? So, let's pray. Holy Father, I praise You for Your Word to us today. And I pray, God, that 
it was heard that in spite of me that you spoke and that your people heard and that they know that your word is sure and steadfast and that because you have spoken it, because you have said it, it shall be. Because you said, I am the resurrection and the life, that though we die, yet shall we live. Because you said, you will never leave us or forsake us. We know that you are with us, that it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. Because you have said it, we know it's true. And we know, Lord, that it's not just effectual. It's not just authoritative and powerful, but it stands forever. It's safe and secure, and therefore our trust in you is likewise safe and secure forever. We'll never be let down. And God, I cannot begin to express the thanksgiving and praise I have for those two truths. That your word is a sure, sure, sure peg in a sure place. I pray, God, that we would cling to it, that we would hang our whole lives upon it, that we would forsake all else for it, that we would know what we need to know, but most of all, Lord, that we would believe what we know, that we would live what we believe, and that we would share it with others, and that you would receive the glory for it. Lord, where salvation is needed, bring salvation now. Lord, where sanctification, where growth, where obedience, where repentance is needed, I pray your word would bring that now. All by your power, all by your grace, and all for your glory. In Jesus' mighty and precious name I pray.